Welcome to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreaux, the president of the City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how the work that we're doing at City College matters to people across the city and throughout the world. We'll discuss the practical applications of our research in solving real-world issues, issues that, that concern us like uh, the opioid addiction uh, problem. We're interested in cybersecurity. We're interested in all forms of economic and social and political disparity. But today, you've tuned into the right show because we're going to talk about jazz. We're saluting jazz during Black Music Month. That's the month of June. According to Essence.com, Kenny Gamble of the Philadelphia songwriting duo Gamble and & Huff and radio personality Dinah Williams conceived of Black Music Month in the 1970s. And the goal of that month was to ensure that blacks would no longer be written out of the history of the musical art forms that they created. Now, for instance, Paul Whiteman called himself the king of jazz in the 1920s, although Buddy Bolden created jazz in the mid-1890s in New Orleans. So Black Music Month is an attempt to make sure that those kinds of leakages from, from, from black culture into other cultures it, uh, don't happen, get acknowledged, and, and that we put a markdown to acknowledge the origins and really the cultural ownership of these forms of music. In 1979, former President Jimmy Carter made Black Music Month official by issuing a decree to honor the contributions made by black musicians in America. To celebrate jazz during Black Music Month, the National Jazz Museum in Harlem held its annual benefit and awards concert at City College's Aaron Davis Hall on June 12, 2019. And later today, Tracy Heider Suffren and Lauren Schoenberg from the Jazz Museum will join us uh, to talk about uh, the relationship with the college and the, the work of the museum. To give us further insights into the history of jazz, Professor Steve Wilson, the Director of Jazz Studies here at City College, is in the studio with me now. Um, Professor Wilson is acclaimed as one of the finest award-winning alto and soprano saxophonists in the business. He's played on 100 recordings, including seven as leader, and he's toured and recorded with probably more jazz greats than we have time to name here, but if we made a list of those greats. At the top of the list, there you would find Chick Corea, Dave Holland, Lionel Hampton, Diana Reeves, and Jimmy Heath, and there are many, many more. Uh, Professor Wilson has taught at several colleges, including the Manhattan School of Music and Juilliard, and he's now, we're proud to say, a full-time professor here at City College. Um, at City College, he teaches jazz theory and jazz repertory and performance practice. His teaching philosophy emphasizes mastering the technical and musical fundamentals that enable students to be total musicians, as well as a skilled performer. When he's not teaching, Professor Wilson actively tours and records. In May 2014, he and his longtime collaborator, the drummer Lewis Nash, released a duo album called Duologue at the Manchester Craftsmen's Guild at Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And in April 2015, he recorded what critics expect to be a career-defining album titled Live at the Village Vanguard. Professor Wilson, it's a real pleasure to welcome you two from City to the World. Thank you, President Boudreaux. It's my honor to be here. Um, I want to start, and we're going to get to your work pretty soon, but before mm -hmm. that, I want to talk a little bit about uh, jazz education at City College and, and, and the history of the relationship between jazz and, and CCNY. Well, the program started here in 1974, okay. uh, long before I was here, or long before I was in New York, actually. Uh, but Ed Sumlin started the program, and right away he brought in the great John Lewis, 
who is uh, the founding member of the Martin Jazz Quartet, one of the seminal groups in, in the history of jazz and American music, uh, to be on the faculty. And also um, Ron Carter, um, one of the greatest bassists uh, in history of the music, also uh, came on board a little later. Um, Jimmy Heath was here at one point, Jackie Byard. Um, so the program has a history to have some of the most important uh, musicians in the history of the music on the faculty. It's a long and distinguished history. Uh, prior to my being here, this is I just finished my sixth full year, <laughs> and John Patitucci, who was um, probably, along with Christian McBride, one of the uh, best-known and greatest bassists on the planet, was here for 10 years. He followed Ron Carter. Um, and there have been many fantastic uh, clinicians and uh, master classes uh, that have taken place and continue to do so. So it's a, it's a very rich history here of, of jazz on campus. And when you talk about the trajectory of the students who come and study in the program, are, are, are they, I mean, we know from, from, from what I said earlier, your, your emphasis is teaching them how to be total musicians. And, uh, but have we produced a range of performers that people would know about? Is that where our students are going when they study in the program? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, many of our students uh, have gone on to, to play with uh, many different touring groups, not just in jazz, but in other genres of music. Uh, they've gone on to become great uh, educators themselves. Mm -hmm. um, I was just going over the list earlier. One of, uh, one of the first students I worked with, Josiah Bonazian, uh, who was a grad student here. He's now uh, getting his DMA at the University of Miami in saxophone. Oh, wow. Uh, another one, um, uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name, but he's a current current um, a PhD student here on campus. Um, so many of our students go on not just to become great performers and educators, but also very active in the business. Mm -hmm. We have a group of students who are currently working at the uh, Jazz Gallery, one of the great venues in New York, uh, and they're doing all, all kinds of uh, capacities there in terms of performing, uh, backline, they also uh, in, in terms of booking groups, uh, artist liaisons. So they're getting involved in all facets of the industry. Mm -hmm. As I said in the introduction, you actively tour and perform, and two of the more recent highlights of your musical career have been the, the release of, of, of um, Duologue, the, the studio album, that, that um, and then this... Um, much anticipated uh, live at the Village Vanguard that was recorded in 2015. Mm -hmm. I'd like to talk a little bit about those two pieces separately. Um, and so first, I mean, tell me a little bit about um, your thoughts behind uh, Duologue and, and, and really the collaborative relationship that you have with your drummer, Lewis Nash. Yes, well, Lewis Nash and I have been performing uh, since um, the late 1980s. I, I arrived in New York in 1987. Okay. I met him when he was touring with Branford Marcellus uh, in the mid-'80s. And uh, so from the time that I first heard him and met him, I knew that that was a drummer that I wanted to, to play with. Mm -hmm. And uh, subsequently, he ended, ended up being on my second release, uh, second album, uh, which was recorded in 1991. Um, and we formed this duo about 15 years ago, actually. Uh, and it was the idea of, of my manager, who was producing a series of concerts with um, ad hoc duos. Okay. And that was the first time we did our concert, no rehearsal, um, no pre-planned uh, repertoire. Um, but right away, there was a real chemistry and, and a synergy. And Lewis actually kind of, I kind of live vicariously through him because I'm a, I'm a drummer at heart. Uh -huh. um, but Lewis is known as being one of the most musical drummers. In other words, when you hear him, you also hear melody, you hear form. 
Uh, and there's not many drummers that can do that so so artistically, and uh, he keeps the audience engaged. So uh, we started this duo. We kept it going, and uh, we've toured out over the world with it. We've played in Italy the last uh, five or six years at the Umbria Jazz Festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've toured throughout the United States. We've done master classes and clinics and residencies. And um, I tell people that when we do play together, they're seeing like a conversation. We're having a musical conversation. And we like to engage the audience and let them in on what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because for a drum and, and saxophone duo, it can be a little bit disconcerting at first. Right. But usually after the first song, they totally get it. And uh, we're just having a lot of fun up there. You say you want to engage the audience in what you're doing. Are you, are you teaching up there as well? Or do you mean you do that through the music? Well, we do it mainly through the music. We, we are informing. We give a little bit of background into the compositions we're doing. Also in the, in the background of how Lewis and I first got together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we just let them know that a lot of times when we start the tune, we don't know what's going to happen because we don't follow a script, but we're just basically feeding off of each other. And Lewis and I speak the same language musically, so it's done pretty effortlessly. So if I go to see you, let's say I see you on two successive nights, what percentage of what I'm going to hear is going to be totally new and what percentage is sort of more or less the stock that you start with before you before you improvise? Mm-hmm. Well, we could play the same repertoire. Uh-huh. We could actually play the exact same set list, mm-hmm. but it will be completely different in its delivery uh, because we don't follow a set script to say, okay, now you solo, now I solo, now you play the melody. We are totally spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually what will happen is we will start with a theme or melody and then from there we basically play off of each other. So it's, I, I, it's akin to like two tap dancers, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you see two of the greatest tap dancers on stage just improvising, it's just spontaneous and in the moment. And whatever the energy is in that given night, that's what it'll be. But, but most of the time, we're throwing caution to the wind, having fun. And 99.9% of the time, we'll wind up at the same place. That's and even when, even when we don't, it's still fun. That's fantastic. Um, I want to talk now... So we talk. Duologue is a, is a studio album. Live from the Village Vanguard is was live from the Village Vanguard, and yes. and and it strikes me that this is something that really uh, sets jazz apart. That that in so many recordings, in the way it was produced, in what happened, in how it is marketed, and how we come to understand the performance. Uh, Readers are told that, you know, on this night, in this spot, something happened that will never happen again, but we, we happened to record it. And can you, mm-hmm. both on that night for you personally, but in the genre of, 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 of jazz, talk a little bit about the importance of, of, of capturing the fleeting, never-to-be-repeated moment. Well, it is, jazz is about being in the moment. Yeah. Uh, even when you have a piece of music that's arranged and orchestrated, uh, but particularly in the smaller ensemble setting, um, every performance is, is different. Uh, though you may have a structure of a melody and a given order of solos that could be the same every night, mm-hmm. but improvisation is, is composition in the moment, mm-hmm. and you never play the same solo. Um, the idea is to find something different every time. It's as if you have... Uh, I remember seeing a, an exhibit, a Picasso exhibit some years ago in Vienna, and he had a series of sketches. It was the same subject, and it was about 20 different sketches. And you could see the evolution of the theme with each sketch. So we think about our performances that way. We're trying to find something different 
um, something within ourselves, something that is in the moment, some, something that represents what we're, what we're thinking of collectively, something that we tap into with the, the different energy of an audience from night to night because, the, you know, you have, may have an uh, audience one night that's very energetic and uh, the audience the next night is um, they're <laughs> very studious. Mm-hmm. So um, you're, you're trying to be completely in the moment but also trusting your colleagues and also being mindful that the music, the musical setting, the music is bigger than any individual. We're there collectively to create something new and in the moment. This is probably not a fair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Okay. Uh, it, it seems to me that in that kind of improvisational mode of producing art, you're probably performing as much for the two or three or five people on stage with you as you are for the audience. I can imagine, you know, being on, uh, you know, doing one of the solos and thinking, you know, I'm just going to knock these guys out when they hear what I've got up my sleeve and you may not even know what you have up your sleeve before it comes out but is it, it i mean is it a is it a, a reasonable question to ask about the relationship between your collaborators as audience and your audience as collaborators oh absolutely and you know that is the case because for me the most fun some of the most fun uh that i have playing is listening to the people that i'm playing with mm-hmm. um because you know that they're going to bring something different and exciting every night and also uh, our, we, we figured a part of our job is to push each other out of our comfort zones and to find different territory every night so that, in, in that sense, you're growing every night as, as an artist. Mm-hmm. You're finding new territory, and that's the whole idea. It represents our growth as a human being. Mm-hmm. We're trying to find new territory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to announce that the music department just graduated its first students with master's degrees in jazz studies. Congratulations. Thank you. And congratulations to them. That's a that that's quite a moment. When did the when did that program take in its first student? Well, uh, officially 2 years ago, we uh, formally had an MA program. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, round of of budget cuts that happened a few years ago, we had to jettison the um, the MA program in the middle of the school year, but mm-hmm. uh, we were green-lighted to reboot this program as a master of music, which we had uh, had a desire to do so anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the good part is that we were fast-tracked to do it, and uh, so all of the faculty, we put our heads together, and uh, we tweaked the curriculum, and uh, we were able to start it. Uh, we were basically like a year ahead of time from what we anticipated. That's fantastic. It is fantastic. So uh, we're very, very happy about that, and uh, and things are looking great. We're now a lot of students from across the world found out about the program, and uh, we're, we're getting applicants from all over the world. And are these primarily performers, or are they students of? of I know that I know that's that overlaps. That, but but are 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 you teaching people to play jazz, or to to know about and think about jazz? Well, all of it. We uh-huh. we want we approach it from a scholarly um, you know, aspect. We want them not just to be performers, but thinkers. Mm-hmm. We want them to be composers. We want them to to uh, be critical thinkers and to analyze and to also understand the history and importance of jazz in the socio-political uh, realm uh, so that they understand their role in the community, in the world community, when they go out and, you know, whether they pursue teaching or performing or another aspect of the business. Yeah. I want to return to that question of, of the social and political context in, in just a second. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not done asking you about Live at the Village Vanguard. Um, okay. This was, you know, this was one of those classic jazz moments where, uh, uh, you know, in 2015, on a single night, you were in 
a historic club in the village, and you made this recording. And I wonder, um, first of all, what does it mean to you to have that kind of temporality built into the album? And second, what do you remember about that specific night that 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 makes it exciting for you to have captured in this in this album? Well, it was a night that all of the elements came together. Uh, we had a sold-out house on both shows. Uh, we had an 8.30 and a 10.30 show, and we recorded both shows, both sets. It was completely sold out, and we had a really wonderful, energetic, uh, engaged audience. Mm-hmm. They knew why they were there. They were giving us um, all of their energy and applause and and vocal approved, uh, um, approving, you know, and uh, it was it was just one of those elements that um, when you can't you can't really script it. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those times when everything comes together, and it was just the right energy, and uh, and the band was was probably played the best it ever played. So it was just one of those amazing moments. Do you come into the Village Vanguard and your audience knows and like this is the night you're going to do an album, or do you? Do you record a bunch of performances, and one night you step away from it, you say, this was the night, everything fell together this night? Well, in this instance, we had planned to record uh, two specific nights, okay. the Saturday and Sunday, mm-hmm. and uh, because we had started the engagement on a Tuesday, so it runs Tuesday through Sunday. But we knew even after the first night that we had captured mm-hmm. that lightning in a bottle, um, everything just felt right. Um, and, of course, anything we get after that, you know, is... is uh, Cream, you know, <laughs> cream on the top, mm-hmm. but uh, but it it just one of those magic moments where everything just came together. So mm-hmm. even with all of the planning, you can't plan that. It must be a great feeling to put your saxophone in the case after a night like that when you've caught it on 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 recording. Yeah, and and especially in the famed Village Vanguard, it is still the most recognized jazz club in the world. Mm-hmm. You can go any night of the week, and there are people literally who make pilgrimages from anywhere in the world to go to the Village Vanguard. You always find more than a few people there that have said, you know, they've been trying to get to this club for, you know, many years, and uh, it's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. So let's now uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about um, the way you teach jazz, and, and I think the way a lot of people appreciate jazz, which is uh, contextualizing the music in the social and political history of the art form. And, mm-hmm. and, and can you talk a little bit about, you know, what we should be paying attention to as we appreciate jazz and how you approach it as a as a professor in the classroom mm-hmm. and, and 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 what that history means to you as as a as a performer well first thing I, I should say is that collectively the entire faculty of our our program is just an amazing faculty uh, it's it's my biggest honor to serve with them because they are all some of the most dedicated artist educators that you'll find not just in New York, but anywhere in the world. And they, aside from the teaching, uh, we all do mentoring. You, you know, that's like, that gives us the biggest joy of our teaching. We're able to mentor our students as they uh, go out in the world and, and find their spot. But but we, we try to bring a holistic approach to our curriculum and to teach them the mechanics of, of performing, the mechanics of composing, arranging theory, um, learning repertoire, um, but also to understand the importance of this music in the history of America and, and, and the power that they have as, as artists and that they can change lives uh, as educators and as artists. They can open up new doors for individuals who hear them, individuals that they teach, and understand that they're contributing something to the world um, that you know, is bigger than 
any individual. They're part of a world community, part of a great continuum of this music that has happened basically over 400 years with the cross-fertilization of African and European cultures. Mm-hmm. So, so that they understand where they are really in context of, of this music as, as a tremendous entity. Mm-hmm. You're, I mean, obviously, you're part of this community. And, and, and from a scholarly perspective, you can look back over those 400 years. Um, it's Black Music Month, and, and, and you know, jazz is a, it's a truly indigenous American art form in the sense that you don't get America without Africa and you don't get America without all the rest of, of, of the immigration that we have. And, mm-hmm. so, and so, you know, as a performer, how do you think about your stewardship of this, you know, really political tradition? As, you know, it's mm-hmm. an art form, but it's also a lot of politics in there. Yeah, well, you know, it's been said, and it is true, that, that, that jazz is probably one of the, the quintessential forms and not the quintessential form of a democracy of a living democracy, because when you see a jazz group performing, you're seeing the individual voice within the group context, Mm -hmm. and that everyone is being responsible to both, yet giving room for each voice to be heard, but also to have a collective to form a larger voice with a larger mission to serve the music, to serve humanity, uh, and to serve something that is bigger than ourselves. And that's really what we want our students to understand. You know, one of the elements of jazz's history is it's always been a disruptive art form as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, that's true of its history. It, it's also true that in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, there's been a kind of resurgence of explicitly political art uh, expressions in the, in the art form. Um, why do you think that is? What's, what's going on in, in contemporary jazz? Well, it's never really gone away. Okay. That's, that's always been a part of the music. Um, I think in the last, well, certainly in the last two years, but I think you could argue within the last 10 years, mm-hmm. um, the new generation, the next generation, that's, I see those that are in the 20s and 30s, they are really aware of world affairs, of injustices, not just in America, but, but everywhere. And whether it's injustice of, of sexism, of racism, of classism, uh, you know, the, the fight for uh, natural resources, whatever it might be. Because, one, we've become a world community. Jazz education has really spread in the last 40, 50 years. So you will find jazz programs in Japan, South America, Europe, um, Asia. Um, and many of the students come here to study, of course, but we all travel and we all touch base with each other. So everyone is much more in tune with each other in the last 20 years or so. So everyone is more aware of what's going on in, in, in different continents, not just in America. So musicians and artists are speaking up, you know, and, and of course with technology, with the Internet um, and with artists and musicians networking constantly, you know, these voices are now being heard probably in, in greater quantity and greater quality. And if, if you're listening to, to the music itself, like what is it that you hear that... Um that contributes to this message. I know when musicians talk about their music, it mm-hmm. can often be very political. Mm-hmm. But they're also directing you to listen to music for elements of resistance and disruption. And, and what do we listen for as listeners? Well, sometimes uh, if it's just, for instance, if it's just instrumental music, yeah. uh, instruments can really evoke the sounds of the human voice. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes evoke the sounds of chaos. So whether it's the drums and the piano and the bass that are uh, totally improvising together, and some people would say, "Oh, they're just playing 
freely, uh, and they are. Uh, some people would call it avant-garde, mm-hmm. but they're really trying to evoke the sound of humanity, and that's really what it boils down to, whether we're playing a beautiful melody, a beautiful ballad, whether we're playing something up-tempo to uh, represent the, the frantic pace of, of being in the city, or whether we're playing something that um, uh, represents the longing of a, of, a, um, of a community to have more freedom and to have more voice. You hear all of that in the different sounds of the music, and that's really what we're... What we're tra- it's like we're painting a musical picture. Mm-hmm. When you look out at, at contemporary developments in, in jazz and you sort of say, you know, here's something new and exciting I've never heard before, this is a new trend, where do you currently direct your gaze? Where would you point me to say, hey, go here to hear something you've never heard before? Oh, wow. That's... <laughs> I, honestly, yeah. if you go to any club in New York... Mm-hmm. Um, Particularly New York. I mean, this, you could say this for anywhere in the world, but particularly New York, because the thing that makes New York different is that New York has the greatest concentration of, of creative artists within the jazz genre. And every year we have new musicians coming from all over the planet to stay here for either short term or long term. They are collaborating with new people. So every night you're finding new sounds. I, I, every night that I go out, or any night that I go out, I'm always hearing something I haven't heard before. And that's, and that's the other thing. Jazz is a living and breathing art form. It's not a museum kind of music, though we may, we may associate it with Louis Armstrong or Duke Ellington or Miles Davis or Dave Brubeck, which is still vital because we're building, building on those masters, on the sounds and the contributions of those masters. But the whole idea and ideal is to find your individual voice and sound. That's the objective. You can only sound like those innovators but for so long but you have to go out and find out how you can innovate and then by doing it you stay true to yourself and true to the music that's fantastic um i guess i've got one last question we're about to have the national jazz museum of harlem come in and 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 talk with us and we're in new york with the city college of new york but we're also in harlem and yeah. and in what ways does that offer a kind of different perspective or new opportunities? Or what does it mean to be a school teaching jazz in Harlem to, to, to your students? Well, first of all, I think that the student gets a unique opportunity. Uh, we, you know, our program, we have many students from um, Japan, Korea, Europe. And for most of them, this is their first time to come to New York. Right. So here they are in uh, what was really one of the cultural capitals of the world, uh, particularly in the 1920s, 1930s, and 40s. And when you think of the Savoy Ballroom, when you think of Duke Ellington, when you think of Fats Waller, uh, Count Basie, and, and this was the center of the jazz universe and the cultural universe for many, many years. Uh, not to mention, you know, County Cullen and Langston Hughes and, you know, all of the others. So here they are in a place where where jazz grew up where jazz became of age and spread throughout the rest of the world. Um, so they can get a unique perspective. And, um, and our, our good friends and colleagues at the, the Jazz Museum of Harlem are keeping that, that alive and also presenting it to new generations. And uh, as we spoke earlier, and we will speak on later, we're having some of our students to be directly involved with that effort. I think that's, that's fantastic. We're, we're about ready to go into break. We're going to have uh, some music during the break. And tell us what we're going to be listening to. I think we're going to listen to a selection from Live at the Village Vanguard. 
Fantastic. Um, and this is not yet published, right? This is It is out. It yes, is out. It is available. I was going to be my other last question, yes. which is which is it is now available, people can buy it. Yep, Amazon, uh, iTunes, the usual places. Okay, ladies yeah. and gentlemen, a real treat, uh, a selection from Live at the Village Vanguard. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. The band is pianist Oren Evans, bassist Ugana Okegwo, drummer Bill Stewart, and the all-purpose man on saxophone, Steve Wilson. Good set in store for you, live at the Village Vanguard on WBGO and NPR Music. Steve Wilson and Wilsonian's Green.
That was a selection from Professor Steve Wilson's recently released Live from the Village Vanguard. We're happy now to start our second half of the show and really privileged to have Tracy Heider Suffern and Lauren Schoenberg from the National Jazz Museum in Harlem, which is a Smithsonian uh, museum, uh, join us in the studio. Um, and he's joining uh, Professor Wilson, who is still with us. Before I tell you a little bit about our new guests, let me tell you about the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. The museum was founded in 1997 with a goal to preserve, promote, and present jazz by inspiring knowledge, appreciation, and celebration of jazz locally, nationally, and internationally. The museum is a hub for live performances, for exhibitions, and educational programs, including the Savory Collection, which includes more than 100 hours of live recordings of jazz jazz legends. These recordings were made from New York City radio broadcast aired between 1935 and 1941. Each year, the museum also produces and presents more than 80 free programs in New York City, engaging hundreds of professional jazz musicians and reaching nearly 20,000 people from around the world. Um, The National Jazz Museum is located at 58 West, 129th Street, a stone's throw away from City College in central Harlem. Let me tell you about our guests now. Tracy Heider-Suffern is the executive director of the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. Prior to joining the organization in 2017, uh, she worked with other nonprofits. Uh, she worked with Intersections, which is an arts and social justice ministry of the Collegiate Church, the Afro-Latin Jazz Alliance, the ABFE, which is formerly the Association of Black Foundation Executives, and Urban Bush Women Dance Company. She also serves, served as the consultant to several organizations, including the Desmond Tutu Peace Foundation, the Malcolm X, and Dr. Betty Shabazz Memorial and Educational Center. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Um, During her tenure, uh, Ms. Heider Suffren formulated and worked with the Board of Trustees to formally adopt the museum's first diversity, equity, inclusion statement. She increased corporate and foundation support during the current, among current and new funders, and offered the museum as a free open rehearsal space to jazz and jazz-related artists. She expanded the walls of the museum throughout the city with community pop-up concerts, prioritized programs that explored the intersection between jazz and social justice issues. We'll talk a little bit about that in in, in a bit. Spearheaded developing collaborations with arts and other organizations and businesses and oversaw unprecedented growth in education programming and museum attendance. I got too many papers in front of me. Um, Maybe this is where... Oh, no, that's where I was supposed to say welcome to the program. (laughs) So welcome to the program again. Happy to be here. (laughs) See, this is the first show that we've done where we explicitly talked about improvisation. And I I feel like I hexed myself by, uh, oh, oh, yeah, (laughs) smooth, not enough O's in smooth to decide. Don't lose your day job. (laughs) Thank you. Our other guest is Lauren Schoenberg, who is the senior scholar of the National Jazz Museum in Harlem, where he served as executive director from 20, well, 2001 to 2012. He's currently on the faculty at the Juilliard School. In addition, he's lectured at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the White House, the New York Philharmonic, the Aspen Institute, where he's a fellow. Uh, Mr. Schoenberg has conducted the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra, as well as the Smithsonian Jazz Masterworks Orchestra, the American Jazz Orchestra, and the West Deutsche Rufkund Jazz Orchestra in Köln, Germany. Mr. Schoenberg uh, is a tenor saxophonist and pianist. He's played and recorded with Benny Carter, Benny Goodman, Jimmy Heath, John Lewis, Christian McBride, Buck Clayton, um, the JLCO, and was musical director for Bobby Short from 1997 to 2005. 
He's received two Grammy Awards for Best Album Notes in 1994 and 2004. Mr. Schoenberg oversaw the Benny Goodman archives at Yale University, where he produced a 10-CD release of previously unissued Goodman recordings. He's taught for several jazz at Lincoln Center education programs and annually serves as a screening judge for essentially Ellington tape entries. Mr. Schoenberg has been published widely, including the New York Times, and his book, The NPR Guide to Jazz, was released in 2003. Lauren Schoenberg, welcome to From City to the World. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Uh, really a pleasure to have both of you here. Um, I would like to start by um, uh, talking a little bit about the institution, the National Jazz Museum of Harlem. I said a few words about it in, in the opening, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the place, uh, the resources it has, programming priorities, and what one of our listeners would experience if he or she came to visit the museum someday. So I've been with the museum now for about a year and a half, mm -hmm. and in that time, among the things that I'm proudest of, and I think that we're all pretty proud of, is that we paid a lot of attention to organizing the, uh, the events and the performances that we do into core program areas. And so um, probably below the surface, what you feel as opposed to what you see in the museum is a real deliberate effort to do some of the things that you talked about, to really find the intersections between social justice and jazz and to use jazz as a driver of current current events and current issues and minimally to offer up the museum as a place for discussion, a place for uh, performance, and a place for maybe a little discomfort mm -hmm. around some of these issues. My background in, I didn't even realize that I had spent so long working in the areas of human rights and social justice, and that's the lens that I see everything through. Um, but it was a very easy fit when we got to the museum. So what we did almost immediately was organize what we do into four program areas. One is education. The other is an area that we call Jazz Is. And that's the area, and the at Jazz Is, and then there's a blank line. Okay. And that's the area where we get to do a lot of that, where we get to combine um, the intersections of jazz and maybe some unexpected things, among them social justice issues, but among them... Also, just some things that you might not think about. Jazz and fashion. Jazz as a driver of fashion. Um, jazz as a driver of food. Jazz and beer. Um, so, yeah, my favorite. <laughs> um, the, the third is, is, a, is a really strong priority, and that's collaborations and partnerships. And once again, that's an area for us to explore maybe some unexpected relationships between jazz and the world, right, and with our... Um, nonprofit partners as well as some of our business partners. And then the final area um, is uh, collections and archives. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit later about the, the archives you have because mm -hmm. I, I learned a little bit about them and they're, they're utterly impressive. But, but let's, let's start where you began about mm -hmm. the connection between uh, jazz and social justice. Sure. It's always been a, a disruptive art form. Um, Steve and I were talking earlier about... Um, you said something interesting that it that it's an inherently democratic art form because of the multiplicity of voices, but the importance of the individual voice as well. But how do you present the social justice legacy of of, of jazz? I was listening to Steve, and I don't know what I can say that can can add to it because I was sitting in this room going, "Yeah, that's right, that's right." <laughs> um, 
what we what we do is we provide we try to provide a safe space for these kinds of discussions and these kinds of experiences. So one of the recent things that we did was we launched our Jazz is Muslim series. So we had Taurus Mateen um, and and I'm trying to remember who played with Taurus. So Taurus Mateen um, opened that week for us, and he talked about Islam as a driver of his creativity. And as a as an influencer of uh, the music, the idea behind that, and we also had later on in the week, we had uh, Arturo O'Farrell and the Afro Latin Jazz Ensemble with Malika Zara. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea behind that was there's such a great history, there's such a great legacy of jazz artists who are also Muslim, mm-hmm. and it's a part of the history of jazz that maybe is a little bit unrepresented, or maybe a lot un- underrepresented. And what we wanted to do was really shine a light on, shine a comfortable light, especially given our current political climate, shine a really uh, comfortable space to have a discussion around what has been the influence of Islam and and what part have Muslims played in the creation and the progression of jazz. Mm -hmm. So that's one example. Mm -hmm. That's terrific. When you listen to, you know, jazz is uh, Islam, Mm -hmm. is... How do I ask the question? Do, close your eyes. Do you know you're listening to Islamic influences? Or is the point that um, it all kind of blends together? That's the point. The, point, the point, point is that we've been listening to, to it as long as we've been listening to jazz. Islam entered the United States with the slave trade. Mm-hmm. And if Africa is a part of the legacy of jazz, if, jazz, if Africa uh, is where is at least one of the places with Europe where jazz originates, then Islam has always been present, mm-hmm. and the influences of Islam have always been there. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of the political history of a lot of music that's disruptive music isn't just what's played, but how it gets played. Right. You know, where, by whom, under what circumstances, what do people take from a performance when they listen to it? And can you talk a little bit about, you know, what imprint those sorts of considerations have made on the history of jazz? Uh, I, I think Lauren can help me a little bit with this and, and maybe Steve, but I like to tell a story. I'm, I've gotten old enough that I repeat my stories. Um, and one of the things I talk about is being at a, uh, a rally as a, as a really young girl. And it turns out it was at Chase Stadium. I couldn't remember where it was. And someone told me, oh, I was there. It was at Chase Stadium. And there were these regular rallies, um, held by the nation of Islam. Mm-hmm. And I just, I'm, I'm not Muslim, um, but I had the opportunity to attend these rallies. And I lift that, uh, I offer that as an example of what an integral part uh, Islam was of black culture. The two were, were never separated. Right. The same way Christianity and black culture haven't been separated. Um, and so... And, and I want to get back to your question. I want you to ask me again because I have a tendency to digress. But there, there, it, because there is no separation, the experience of the the audience doesn't even necessarily always realize that they're that this is a new experience or a different experience for them because it always has been. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm, I, I, I'm not sure how to get to the point of your of the answer to your question? Well, let me just give so a, a book that made a huge impression on me you know, 30 years ago mm-hmm. was Roll, Jordan, Roll, okay. right? Which is both about um, 
the music that that came out of uh, the slave culture in America, mm-hmm. but also the way it was performed and what it meant. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I, you know, today we go to jazz clubs. Right. But it wasn't always that way, right? right? It, I mean, there, there there were times when jazz was performed in particular places right. by people that maybe didn't get to perform in other ways. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that sure. history. Um, I'll just say one thing about that, and that is one of the things I often say at the museum is that jazz, uh, and I heard Steve sort of refer to this, jazz was social music. It was dance music, right? And what's happened is it's in many places it's become music that you politely listen to and you nod your head to. So that, that, that tradition of, that call and response tradition, that getting up and dance tradition, that actually being a part of the experience instead of, sitting back and watching the experience is it has been part of the evolution mm-hmm. and what I'd like to see happen is sort of a reversal of that where it becomes more social and more uh-huh. engaged in a very physical way that involves the audience I see I see we talked a little bit about that earlier about the role mm-hmm. of, of, of the audience I'm going to ask you both the question that that I put to Steve a little bit earlier which is um, we're living in a really dynamic moment in jazz. Mm-hmm. There, there's, um, I had said earlier that, that I thought there was a, a, a particular upsurge of, of, of explicitly political um, jazz activity. Uh, Steve said, and I take his word for it, that that's never gone away, um, that somebody mm-hmm. who's seen that in the last 15 years has only been paying attention for the last 15 years. But where do you look for the most sort of exciting contemporary developments in the jazz scene? I'd ask Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> and I would, I would, I have a two-part answer. One is, integral to that is our program director, who's not here, who's, his name is Ryan Maloney. He's the director of programming and education. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I hope I'm bringing to the museum is looking in unusual spaces for that. I agree with what Steve said. Uh, what has happened uh, to cause this sort of, what seems to be a political upsurge um, is, uh, technology, for one thing. Okay. Um, people can communicate with each other more easily. The other thing that's happened is crazy politics, right? So we've al- always had crazy politics, but it's crazy politics in your face. Right? Um, one thing, uh, another thing that's happened is um, everybody has a video camera. So you see things that happen, maybe not live, but you see firsthand yeah. the things that are happening in the world. And young people and young artists have a political response to that as they always always have had, but the outlets are different. Uh-huh. So there's the internet, there's the access to radio in a different way. Um, so I think that, that that has always happened. The way, um, let's call it revolution, right? Mm. Or responses have happened in the past have been elevated by technology. Mm-hmm. I'll say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do we look? I like to look in unusual places, and I think that's part of the healthy tension at the at the jazz museum. I like to look. One of the things that saddens me is that you could walk through New York City subways and have an artistic experience, whether you wanted to or not. Right. Right. <laughs> true. True. <laughs> 
that doesn't happen the way it used to anymore. Hmm. Um, and so what I like to do is reach into the community as much as we can to bring people into the museum who might not have the opportunity because they don't have the benefit of coming through a jazz program. So we, what I challenge us to do is to figure out how can we do that, right? Um, I like to look for ways to offer opportunities for for young artists to express those cross-sections, jazz and politics, mm -hmm. right? So one of the ways we do that is, as you said, I've opened the museum for free rehearsal space for jazz and jazz-related artists. So you don't have to be a musician. Um, if what you do is related to jazz and your interpretation of that, not my definition of that, um, you, there's the opportunity to come into the museum and have free rehearsal space during business hours. And I'm always astounded by the lack of response to that. We don't get a lot of takers. That sounds like a fantastic opportunity. Everybody says that. So, so ladies yeah. and gentlemen, <laughs> if, you've got, if, if, if you have a connection to jazz, um, this, is, uh, this is an opportunity for you. Mm -hmm. um, I wanna, so we've talked a lot in just recently about... Um, you know the politics and the mm -hmm. social element of it, but the other thing that's come up in 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 in, in the way that we've all been talking about jazz, this word studious or scholarly mm -hmm. um, comes up, and so I'm, I was thinking as I was <coughs> preparing me. for this, uh, you know, there's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I don't know that there's a rock and roll museum that tries to do the same thing that the National Jazz Museum of Harlem does, and I wonder. I mean, is there something? in the genre of jazz that also lends itself to a particularly studious inclination. I've heard, you know, I've heard the improvisation and the democracy of it, but there's clearly this other element where people can go to a jazz concert and sit in their chair and be totally absorbed and they might as well be in a library. And can you talk a little bit about what, what, what gives the art form this, this scholarly dimension? Well, when I order fish in a restaurant, um, I don't tell the waiter when he asks me, I say, have the salmon, please. By the way, I don't know much about salmon where they're caught, but I'd like to order the salmon. Now, the way that I connect that, <laughs> the way that I connect that to jazz is um, we've come to the point where people think that there's something to know. Right. There's no more to know about jazz than there is about eating a piece of salmon. And by that, I mean tea from China is an inherently political way, historical way of looking at the history of the world. You just want to talk about tea. Mm -hmm. Boom, you got everything. You yeah. know, uh, and you want to talk about farming salmon in the environment. You want to talk about jazz, and you are opening up a window into not only American history, but world history. So when, um, I, when you give a child medicine sometimes, you know, you will put it inside the, the baby food or, or something like that. Uh, the way I look at it is when people listen to jazz, we try and um, hook them, like, just like Tracy was saying, with the physical experience of loving it and enjoying it. Mm -hmm. And then you get this nexus between the brain and the heart. And we live in a society now, uh, you know, I tend to digress, but I'll try and reel it in a little bit. No, I'm serious. Be because we live in a world where you wake up and you go to sleep, everything's against you in terms of intellectual capabilities mm -hmm. or, or stressing the important, uh, stressing uh, 
intellectual capabilities or even intelligence. Yes. Popular media and everything, from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep. We like to think that the reason that people walk through that door on 58 West 129th Street is they're what we call curious listeners. Uh-huh. They're curious. And I think maybe that's, that's the defining element. And then you can take the curiosity as far as you want. You can go up to, you can study with a great professor at a university and go for a master's or a PhD. Or you can become, like a lot of jazz folks, autodidacts. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, we've been able to actuate this. Uh, you know, the, we opened our doors at the museum in 2001, 2002. And we succeeded basically because we um, related to the environment that we were in. Uh-huh. People, music, and most of the people who come to the museum are people, just like Tracy was saying, who are not necessarily capital J jazz fans. We have a problem at the museum. And the problem is people won't leave because they're having such a great time. Because I think the Latin word is schmooze. They, they, tend to, they tend to schmooze and socialize in a way that they don't do at a classical concert. They may not even do it at a rock concert or, or any kind of concert. First of all, because of the decibel level. You can actually talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. But anyway, just to summarize it all, in the last two years or so, we have seen this exponential growth uh, that Tracy has brought in in terms of saying, you know, if I can paraphrase what you said what, to, to the staff, was kind of like, yeah, you do all these great things, but you want to know something? In music, there's, you know, there's rhythm, harmony, and melody. We need to organize things here. Mm-hmm. And now things have gotten organized. We've seen, I don't know what the number is that Ryan and, and, and you have all done, which is... Uh, increase the amount of students who come from hundreds to thousands. Mm-hmm. The grants, the foundation money that's coming in for things are exponentially growing. Mm-hmm. So I think as the museum enters its second decade or third decade, I guess, um, uh, we're in the best position that we've ever been in. Mm-hmm. If I can just add one thing. I think the most important thing, if I can, I, I want to add to what Lauren is saying, is that is that you don't have to be particularly smart. <laughs> to come into the museum. Why'd you look at me when you said that? I tell people all the time, it's not a library. You can talk. You can hang out. We invite you to come in. If you just want to get come in from the heat or come in from the cold, you're welcome to stay all day. Come in and, and don't be afraid to make noise. You don't have to be a student of anything. Right. You just have to want to come in and have a good time. Right. And it's a Smithsonian Museum, so that means it's very expensive to go there, right? It means it's outrageously expensive. Um, We're not a Smithsonian. <laughs> And we're a Smithsonian affiliate. Affiliate. Yes. And so what that means is, for us, is that there's a suggested contribution of $10, Uh but we never turn anybody away. Exactly right. 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 Um, This is is a, it's a fantastic deal. Um, And, uh, you know, as, as Tracy and Lauren said, it's open to everybody. It's open all the time. And and be one of the people that they have to kick out at, 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 <laughs> at the end of the day. One thing I just want to mention also is our two artistic co-directors yes. uh, who've been with us, uh, Christian, since about 2004, 2005, and John at least for 10 years or so. This is Christian McBride and John Batiste. And they both represent um, as human beings and as musicians slash band leaders slash influencers mm-hmm. precisely the philosophy that Tracy was talking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, they do it. They are they're great players. John's band, which you see on David on on, on, on the, the Colbert Show, was mm-hmm. born at the museum. 
It's fantastic. Uh, and, mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and Christian also. And they do programming for us. Christian mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. records uh, his serious uh, satellite radio show there and brings in all kinds of great people. Valerie Simpson just recently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And John, uh, when he can get away from the TV show, <laughs> did a solo concert. You know, we have uh, the Ellington Family Piano at the museum. Oh, wow. And John came down and played about an hour or an hour and a half, we, his people had to tear him away. Solo piano. And in our place, if we take everything out, we can seat about 100 people, which okay. is perfect. And, and it was just sheer magic. Yeah. Well, we heard uh, John both talk and play right. at, the, at the gala here at City College on June 12th. And the music was fantastic. But the way he talked about his relationship to jazz was just just captivating and and to have him and and Christian um, guiding uh, the creative end of things is 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 really quite extraordinary. It's a gift. It really it is. is a gift. We're very lucky. So we have um, <clears throat> we have jazzed through another hour of from city to the world. I want to thank you to, for listening. Um, I want to especially thank our guests, CCNY's director of jazz studies, saxophonist Steve Wilson. And also Tracy Heider Suffern and Lauren Schoenberg from the National Jazz Museum of Harlem. Tell, tell our listeners again where it is and when it's open. Sure. We're located at 58 West 129th Street, an easy commute on the 2 and 3 train to 125th. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're in central Harlem. We're open from Thursday to Monday, 11 to 5. Mm-hmm. But we have lots of programming that goes on in the evenings. Tell us about the most exciting program that's coming up that people should should pay attention to. Watch for Harlem Havana every August. Yep. It's not the only thing, but it's one of the things that we've been talking about recently. Every August, we celebrate Afro-Latin jazz and Afro-Cuban jazz. And so we're doing our Harlem Havana programming in, uh, during the month of August. And this is the 500th anniversary of the founding of Havana, so a historic year for Harlem mm-hmm. Havana. Lord. Uh, yeah, and we want to thank Lloyd Williams, of course, who's a, a long, long, long time mm-hmm. NJMA board member and supporter. And he's brought so many things our way, specifically that program. Mm-hmm. That's right. And many, many others, too. But yeah, so yeah, yeah and a good stuff. friend of the station as well. Um, Steve, what's on? You know, so your, your, your latest album is out. This is live at the Village Vanguard. Mm-hmm. Where else can someone go to see you play in, in, in the near future? I'll be performing at the Jazz Standard uh, with Billy Childs, a Grammy Award-winning uh, pianist and composer, mm-hmm. uh, the second week of July. And following that, I'll be there again with the great Bristol Williams, another uh, legendary bassist who well, I've been working with for many years. Fantastic. Well, I want to thank all of you to be here to celebrate jazz and to commemorate uh, Black Music Month. Um, the show is produced by the incomparable Angela Harding and mm-hmm. by the uh, often imitated uh, yours truly, Vince Boudreau. <laughs> I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, president of the City College of New York, and we have a special treat for you going out. We're going out with Harmony in Harlem, which was played by our guest, uh, Lauren Schoenberg, and his jazz orchestra. When he heard we were going to play it, he said, oh, you found my old album. So join <laughs> us in listening to Lauren's old album, Harmony in Harlem. <laughs> See you next month, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, sir.
touch that dial. Keep it locked on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem.